Alright, turn with me again this morning to the Gospel, to the Gospel of Mark, and we begin chapter 12. We're here on the Tuesday of the week of Jesus' crucifixion, in the middle of a number of challenges to Jesus that we'll get, come back to in coming weeks, but here Jesus tells a, a parable in the midst of these uh, conflicts. Mark chapter 12, I'll read the first 12 verses here. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower, and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head. And treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send. A beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. I grew up with uh, gardens, uh, large gardens in my family, lots of vegetables and strawberries and uh, lots of flowers. Uh, after Carly and I married, uh, living in Pennsylvania, we were living in a, an apartment, and I uh, asked our landlady if we could till up the little piece of grass on uh, on the alley there, and she said sure, and so we uh, planted a garden there. It was a great garden. We planted a bunch of stuff, and in that soil, and that uh, climate, just kind of let it go, and it, and it went um, uh, crazy. We had more spinach and lettuce and uh, basil and peppers and all kinds of things than we could eat. Well, then we moved to Florida uh, about 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago. And of course, there's plenty of agriculture in Florida, um, especially uh, citrus and fruit. I was eager to grow some stuff there, too. Um, we were given, when we moved there, given three uh, citrus trees. And so we, we planted those. There's, there's really no soil in Florida, nothing that, that I think qualifies as soil. Um, so I learned what you have to do and, and carefully watered these trees and pruned them and uh, fertilized them and fertilized them. Uh, and over the nine years that we were there, uh, we never got a single good tangerine or, or navel orange uh, from those trees. Um, they were short and diseased. Uh, the whole time and, and eventually ripped them out. We also had a blueberry farm directly behind our house where we'd go and pick blueberries and 
these were, uh, it's become a, a pretty big thing in Florida. These bushes developed by the University of Florida. Each bush produces 10 to 12 pounds of blueberries uh, every season. Um, they, were, they were really good. So I thought I'd try that. They sold their bushes and I could, you know, learn from them and watch over the fence what they were doing. And so I planted four blueberry bushes as well and um, did everything I thought I was supposed to. And from those four bushes each year, got about a cup or two, um, not 40 pounds uh, like I was promised. Uh, and they never grew much. I eventually ripped those out too. Well, the, the parable here, uh, God pictures himself as a farmer, at least as a, a wealthy landowner who, who does all the preparation and provision needed for this vineyard and, and hires farmers to work it. Uh, and his people are pictured as the vines, as the fruit. And we'll see in this another encouragement to us that God will faithfully and unfailingly succeed in growing and blessing his church. It, it was a good thing that my family's uh, livelihood did not depend on uh, producing fruit there in Florida, oranges and, and blueberries and that sort of thing. And likewise, the success and blessing of the church is ultimately promised by God. It, it depends entirely upon him and upon his grace. So let's look at this uh, parable together. This is the last parable uh, in the Gospel of Mark uh, that, that we come to. It's a parable about a vineyard. Uh, verse 1, again, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and, and put a wall around it and so on. It describes everything that, was, that he did for this vineyard. He, he uh, it's, uh, puts up a fence, a wine press, a tower. There's protection for it. Jesus is clearly building on and, in fact, directly quoting from Isaiah chapter 5 that we read just a few minutes ago. Uh, we don't often think of parables in the Old Testament uh, but there are a few, and Isaiah 5 is, is uh, maybe the best example of that. Again, Isaiah uh, speaks of his beloved, the Lord, uh, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, put a watchtower, and, and dug out a wine vat. Again, the idea is someone doing everything that's necessary, rich soil and all, for, for a prosperous, healthy vineyard. Uh, and then Jesus says he went on a journey. It was, it was common for wealthy landowners to live at a distance from various pieces of land they owned. And yet he was the owner. He would have been owed rent, uh, which would have been paid in kind. It would have been paid in, in terms of what was grown on the land that he was renting out. And that's reflected in this story as well. Well, what's, what's pictured by this, this general setup of this parable? You know, sometimes... Symbols or parables in the Bible are, are hard to understand or hard to decipher. Uh, this one is easy. Uh, Israel has a long history of uh, a vine or a vineyard as a symbol. And Isaiah chapter 5, which Jesus is building on, uh, tells us explicitly what, what the meaning it is here. It, it says, for the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. It's, it's the people of God. That's the vineyard. And, and it, it, at the end of that passage, it says what the fruit that God was looking for was righteousness and justice. There's people to do what was right, to serve him. Uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we have this, this image as well of, of God's people as a planted vine. Uh, Psalm 80 is probably the best example of that. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very hyperbolic passage. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. 
the mighty cedars with its branches. So that, that pictures Israel as a, a vine in, in hyperbole, a vine that grows to cover the whole known world, to cover the mountains and, and even the cedars. So back to this overall parable here that Jesus is telling. He actually, he's using Isaiah 5, but he changes the metaphor a little bit and then he adds something. He adds tenants to the story, right? Um, who are the tenants? Well, the tenants are the leaders of Israel, right? Uh, the official ordained priests or the kings of the past, uh, they were given responsibility to cultivate, to use what God had provided and done for his people, to, to pass it on to the next generation, uh, and so on. And so across Israel's history, God had, like the farmer in the parable, done everything necessary for his people, made rich provision for them, uh, so that they could uh, live there and enjoy him and glorify him and, and live with him forever. So he had rescued them from Egypt. He had... Uh, brought them safely by miraculous provisions and miraculous vis- victories. And he gave them land and gave them their leaders and gave them their um, his gracious law and, and the temple, the tabernacle, his, his presence with them. Uh, he taught them about the Savior that was to come through sacrifices and through the priesthood. And this parable here is, again, directed especially at the tenants that Jesus adds to the story, directed at the leadership of Israel, who were given responsibility of using all that that God had given, caring for it, and passing on. They were to do that as, as stewards, right? stewarding what God had given, what belonged to God, what God had given to his people. Um, and that's still true of, of leaders of the church today. Uh, they're to lead as stewards, to fulfill their role as, as humble servants, right? not supposing that Anything in the church belongs to them for their good. Uh, they're stewarding what God has given for God's purposes. Um, God is the owner and provider. He sets the goals. He, he receives the glory in his church. Well, that's not what was happening in Israel. And this parable goes on to illustrate this. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce, the vineyard, from the vine growers. That would be the rent. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This was a, an incredibly uh, brazen act on the part of these, these renters of the vineyard. Uh, and, and immediately, and throughout this story, we're, we're meant to ask, as the reader, the hearer of this story, we're meant to ask, what is the landowner going to do? How is he going to respond? What is he going to do to them? We're, we're supposed to be asking that, that, that throughout the story. How, how will they be punished now and when? But, but incredibly, the, the landowner simply sends another servant with, with the same simple request and, and direction. No threats or punishment. Verse 4, he sent another slave. They wounded him in the head. There's, there's progression in each of these verses. The, the treatment gets worse. The first servant is beaten. The next one gets a head wound. And then the next one is killed. Verse 5. That one they killed. And then as so with many others, beating some and killing others. Well, this clearly pictures Israel's leaders over the centuries their treatment of God's prophets. God sent his messengers again and again to his people. And, and the kings of the past and the priests and others repeatedly began imagining that, that they were in control. 
of Israel and, and all of God's blessing. And they were ruling Israel for a personal gain, not for the glory of God in the world, not cultivating what, what God had given by his grace. There are examples of that throughout the Old Testament. The, pre, the, the prophet Zechariah warned God's people about disobeying God. It's not going to go well for you. And the king ordered that he be stoned. Or Jeremiah, even more faith, uh, famously, you, you all know the story of Jeremiah. He preached uh, faithfully and Pasher the priest had him arrested and put in the stocks. All right? Hosea laments uh, of his day, the prophet is considered a fool. Uh, and God in, in Jeremiah chapter 7 really summarizes the whole situation. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my prophet, this, my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen to me or pay attention. That really was true all the way up through the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, right? The leaders rejected him. He eventually lost his head. Well, that brings us again to number two on your outline to this implied question, what will the owner do? What is the owner going to do after all of this? And I partly pose that question because in, in Luke's account, Luke chapter 20, if you want to read that later, uh, Luke uh, quotes Jesus posing that question exactly here as well in the parable. Um, I think it's implied throughout Mark's telling of the parable, and Mark has the question explicitly later in verse 9, but Luke has this question throughout the parable. And we're, we're, we should be, the reader would naturally be asking this question throughout, what is the owner going to do? The, the reader is supposed to be horrified at what the tenants have done here, and, and it's evident the landowner, after verse 5, has no more servants to send. He's exhausted his entire uh, workforce They've all died or been beaten up. And so how is he going to respond? Again, at the end of verse 5, the, the hearer of this parable is clear about the plain uh, brutality of these tenants against um, the servants, these innocent servants. You're clear about the, the injustice that they've done to the agreement they had with the owner. Uh, the, the hearer is clear about this attempt to steal what belongs to the owner, the rejection of him as, as the master of this land. And, and maybe especially in the ancient culture there, the hearer of the parable is, is clear about the, the horrible dishonor that these tenants have shown uh, to the owner of the land. You know, after the very first incident, the very first servant was mistreated the landowner had every right to take action and to pursue justice. And now he overwhelmingly, after all that's gone on, he overwhelmingly has justification to take action, to pursue justice, to take what, back what belongs to him. That He's been defied and humiliated over and over again. And so the question, what will he do, would seem simply to be what, what kind of punishment is coming and when? Right? When you, like when your child uh, disobeys, just flatly disobeys, you, you might pause and think, well, what, what punishment is, is right? You don't, you don't think, well, should I punish him or not? Right? There has to be some consequence. Will it be a spanking or a loss of privilege or, or whatever it will be? Here we're talking about uh, 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 an infinitely greater offense. 
And so what kind of punishment, what kind of justice, what kind of retribution will this master bring? Is he going to immediately go and, and try to have these guys thrown into prison for life or have them executed or sold into slavery? Or what, what will it be? We don't know the master well yet. And we ought to ask these questions of a parable like this and not let our familiarity with how the story goes uh, keep us from seeing the shocking choice that he actually makes at this point. Verse 6. He had one more to send. A beloved son. No, he, he had one more to send. This is his only son. An only beloved son. Well, if he's sending his son, we might think at this point, surely if he's sending his son, it's going to be he's going to send him as his authoritative representative. Maybe he's going to gather some armed friends or gather the authorities. And he's going to go back and, and assert his authority through his son and take back the vineyard and punish these these foolish and wicked tenants. But he doesn't send his son with the authorities to take control. Verse 6 goes on. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. And, and as the story goes on, it's evident he just went alone, unarmed, with, with the same, uh, into the same danger with the same simple plea as all the servants did. He sent him the same way. You know, after what had consistently happened over and over again, none of us would, would ever consider sending a, a loved one uh, into, into that kind of a circumstance, into that kind of danger. He sends him saying, they will respect my son. In uh, Luke's version, he sends him with this, this, the way it's worded is perhaps they will respect him. And I want to park just for a moment on that word respect. The, the, the Greek word that's translated respect can in fact um, take two different directions. So it can mean one thing or the other. Uh, and obviously respect is the one that, that is chosen here in this translation. But um, if, if you're a bit of a grammar geek, um, in, when this word is used in the New Testament in the middle voice, it means respect. It has the sense of respecting someone. Uh, when it's used in the passive voice, uh, it means to be ashamed. It has a rather different meaning, to be ashamed. Uh, but that's consistently the meaning. You know, in the shame, ashamed in the sense of recognizing you're wrong and, and repenting. And so uh, respect is chosen here. Respect maybe more readily seems to fit the story perhaps. But it's the passive voice that's used in this passage here. Here's a couple other examples of uh, where, where this word is used in the passive voice uh, and means shame. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is writing to Titus, encouraging him to um, live an excellent godly life in front of unbelievers uh, so that, he says, an opponent may be, same word, put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, so that the people who are accusing you will will come to recognize they're wrong. They'll, they'll see the good that you're doing. And they'll come to repentance. Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. is addressing uh, church members who in grievous, unrepentant sin. And he says the church needs to put them out of membership so that they will, same word, be ashamed. Right? To, to their benefit. They'll, they'll see the harm they've caused and, and they'll come back in repentance. 
That's the hope. Uh, Ken Bailey, I've quoted Ken Bailey before. He's a Middle Eastern scholar and Bible scholar. Um, And he notes that most Middle Eastern translations of the New Testament, most Arabic translations of the New Testament for the last 2,000 years have all understood this word here to be in the sense of shame, uh, to be ashamed. And and again, the sense is if, if you've ever been caught doing something wrong, Maybe something you knew was wrong, but you, you weren't, um, it wasn't affecting you or your conscience until you saw maybe how it was hurting others, or you saw uh, how um, loving and patient someone else was treating you despite your acting uh, so badly, and you felt shame right? to, to your benefit. It was convict- a convicting shame. Well, that's the hope of the master in this parable here. He's hoping there might be some shred of honor left in these wicked tenants so that when they see the incredible patience and forbearance and mercy of their master and his vulnerability and sincerity in sending his son, even though he could, he could send the authorities and have them killed, that they will be ashamed of their actions and repent. He's giving them another chance, saying, surely if I send my son, they'll be ashamed of all they've done and and will will change. But what happens? Verse 7. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's kind of hard to see what they could have been thinking. Uh, where this was going, uh, what outcome they could have hoped for. But I think that's a, a good illustration in some ways of the nature of sin, the progression of our sin, of sin in our lives if we don't confront it in, in the grace of God, if we're not ashamed and confront our sin. Uh, it, it increasingly numbs us, right? Our consciences become duller and duller. Uh, we fail to feel shame when we should. Like these men did. We, we want what we want, no matter how irrational it is. We become more and more blinded to evil and to its consequences. That's how sin works. Of course, what's pictured here in verse 6 is God sending his only beloved son, Jesus. Even though he had every right a quadrillion times for a quadrillion reasons, to come in judgment against the earth, God over and over again offered peace, offered forgiveness, over and over again reminded and pleaded, over and over has showed mercy and forbearance, until, according to his gracious plan, he sent his only beloved son, right? that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We'll talk about the the judgment this comes to in a moment, but notice that in sending his son, in this parable, in sending his son to these wicked, arrogant, foolish, rebellious tenants, the master was incredibly still holding out mercy to them. That's the implication of the story. Every time he sends a servant, even when he sends his son, the implication is if they would just pay the rent, they would just carry on then as tenants despite all the beatings and murders that had gone on before. It's shocking enough that a landowner treated that way would even consider this option. It's kind of a ridiculous story in that sense. It should be unthinkable that a holy God would consider that option for much greater offense. 
And so the lesson is, one of the lessons is simply that God is still now holding out mercy to you. If you will submit to him, to the, to the murdered but risen Lord, Jesus as gracious Savior, despite your sin, despite your rebellion, your sins will simply be wiped out. You're forgiven. That, that's the offer. Like these tenants, it's, it's not conditional. You don't have to spend a thousand years in, in prison first, or you don't have to pay for one single sin first. Really, even more than that, the, the reality of the parable points to is far greater than the parable itself. You, you, don't, you won't just carry on as tenants when, when, when God forgives you in his grace. You're actually welcomed into his family as sons and daughters, given an inheritance, despite all the beatings and murders and so on in, in your past, so to speak. That's the grace that God offers to you despite your sin. And may we never cease to be humbled and shamed in the sense of this story uh, by the humility and patience and long-suffering and mercy of God in the face of our guilt and our high-handed pride uh, over and over again. Well, we come then to the question again, number three on your outline, uh, where Mark uh, includes this explicitly, what will the owner do? And, and I, th I think it's appropriate to, in the sense of this whole story, uh, paraphrastically add the word now. After all that's gone on and now the son has been killed, what will the owner do now? I'm going to look at the first half of that answer in verse 9 first. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. Now Luke's account... Uh, it's, it's right at this point where the scribes and the leaders, they react. Um, they, uh, they weren't stupid. They figured out the story was about them. And they reject Jesus' interpretation of his own story. Uh, Mark, Mark tells us at the end of the parable in verse 12 that the leaders clearly knew it was about them. Um, and, and they were upset about that. Uh, maybe the, the tenants in the story thought that because the master was far away, because they kept getting away with one rebellion, two rebellions, five rebellions. It keeps working out for them. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe they can have things their way. Maybe they are in control. And that serves as a warning to you. If, if you haven't submitted your life to the owner of your life, to the owner of history, don't think that because your life is comfortable, because you've ignored God all of these years, or because you've gotten away with this or that, or you've persisted in a certain sin and nothing bad has happened, or because you're relatively comfortable, because you seem to have control of your life and things are going well, don't think that God is not the owner of all that you have and all you are, and is not coming in judgment against you. It reminds of the story of the, the parable of the rich fool right? who didn't consider God and he built giant barns to, to store up all of his wealth and he made his retirement plans to move to Florida and so on. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but God comes to you in the middle of the night and says, you fool, you're going to die tonight. And, and what's going to happen to all of this? God's delay in coming or acting in your life perhaps is not because he's slow or weak. 
It's only because he's merciful. It's only because he hasn't come in judgment yet. He's waiting on you to repent or to respond to the gospel if you haven't. He's waiting for you to live your life as a stewardship from Jesus. But there there will be judgment. A rejection of God's grace and mercy and provision uh, will not fail to meet justice ultimately in the end. And, and Jesus goes on in verse 10 to, give, to further give this warning, uh, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. Like that, that the image of a, a stone that uh, stonemasons or builders threw away, they thought it was worthless, and it came to be the foundation of, of all things. Jesus is pointing to the fact he's going to be cast aside as worthless. He's going to be killed just in a few days. And yet God is going to establish him as king and judge. It, it's a warning. Um, he was going to submit to death, but he would be given authority and judgment. And, and God's patient and costly grace uh, would one day come to an end. It will one day come to an end. Uh, towards those who, who reject him. Um, he will eventually judge those who treat God's centuries of patience and, and the generous and vulnerable and even unthinkable offer of his own son, pictured in this parable, who treat that with rejection. Well, I want to close on a note of encouragement for the church. Uh, the, the other half of what the owner, what God will do in response to the rejection and murder of his son we look in, in letter B on your outline, as he will build his church. Verse 9, again, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Uh, God's church and all of his blessings and provisions would be taken, in a sense, from the Jewish leadership or anyone who, who was rejecting Jesus, but God is not canceling his plan. He would give it to others. He would give it to his disciples. He would give it to any Jews who would acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and Savior. He was going to give it to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world. Uh, Even though God's love and plan are rejected by many, one of the key lessons of this parable, too, is that none, no one, and nothing can thwart God's plan or, or kill his vineyard. Right? He will bless. He will be glorified in saving people for himself. He will build his church. Uh, he will see others enjoy the provision of grace and forgiveness and eternal life and so on. The, the vineyard is still there. Right? The vineyard will grow. And that's Jesus' assurance in this, this parable. Jesus is and will be the foundation for all who build on him. One, one thing just in closing, this parable shows us that uh, about all the prophets including the greatest prophet, Jesus, uh, that they had in common was rejection. One, one sure way to face rejection is to follow Jesus, is to, to proclaim the gospel. Um, but here's the great encouragement for God's people, that even death doesn't derail God's plan. Even the death of his own son, uh, the rejection of him, uh, did not derail his plan, but was part of his plan. His, his inheritance and promises will be given. The, the vine will grow. Uh, so be encouraged this morning in your patient and generous God as it's pictured in this parable here. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for uh, your word uh, in Mark chapter 12 and uh, the teaching of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the the sober warnings of this passage uh, and the great comfort of it uh, to those whose faith is in Christ. Uh, We just pray this morning that you would increase our faith, uh, increase our peace in knowing him and our willingness to follow him this week. We pray this in his name. Amen.